It's great to be with you this morning. I, I feel like I owe you a little bit of explanation as I cried through the entire worship. You must, what is the matter with that woman? Um, <laughs> I shouldn't have worn any eye makeup. That's for certain today. But anyway, um, just kind of to tell you the context of where I am this weekend. Um, my very dearest spiritual friend died uh, 10 days ago, nine days ago. And I walked with her, Betty Howard, through the last seven weeks of her life, day by day, and uh, was with her when she passed. So to sing those songs this morning about that entrance into heaven and what God has prepared for us. Um, and then ironically, as only God can do, he took her home on the anniversary of my husband's death 21 years ago. So if I seem emotional, I'm a little bit <laughs> over the edge. Um, but you've been over the edge before yourselves so you underst understand hard things in life. So, Father, thank you that above all, you understand. And nothing in our lives is a mystery to you, and you know our emotions, and you know our journeys, and you know our hard places. You know our places of joy, like last night and laughter. Um, and you walk with us. And you'll never, ever, ever leave us, and you'll never, ever forsake us. And so, Lord Christ, how we cry out to you that you would have your way in each one of our hearts this morning and especially in mine, that, God, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would not just be acceptable but would be delightful in your heart. And so we yield this time to you with confidence in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, thank you. It's a God knows the end from the beginning, and uh, she said, thank you for being here despite the week that you've had, and um, I take comfort in the fact that God knows the end from the beginning, and his, this timing wasn't a surprise to him. Wouldn't be what I would have chosen, <laughs> but he knows what he's doing, and last night um, was medicine to my heart, so I thank you for that uh, so, so much. So this morning, um, I... I, and God led me to this topic two or three months ago. So um, what is, where is God when life turns upside down? <laughs> and I feel like mine has turned upside down yet again. Um, and as I've thought about through my life, because as we all know, I'm the oldest person in the room. No, yeah, I am the oldest person. I think we established that last night. Um, <laughs> I've experienced a lot of life-altering circumstances. Um, I, I was rehearsing some of them. I mean, it would take all morning if I rehearsed all the things that happen in life. But um, I was thinking of my twin sister. I have an twi identical twin sister. And if she were here, you would wonder who was who, perhaps. But um, when Kathy was born, she was born with a hole in her heart. But that was in 1944, as you know <laughs> from last night. And so there was, you know, there was nothing to be done, nothing to be done. So over our childhood and growing up, um, we were both pretty athletic and really loved sports. And I could do the really active ones, and Kathy couldn't because of her heart. And by the time we went off to college, I went to a big university. She went to a small college because she couldn't go someplace where she would have to walk too far. And um, so at the end of her freshman year, or our freshman year in college, um, she had open-heart surgery in St. Louis, uh, pioneer open-heart surgery. And uh, 
by God's miraculous love and care and grace, a, uh, a hole in her heart the size of a quarter was repaired when we were 18 years old. But, you know, have, having her grow up with that, that was a bit life-altering from normal life. Um, I think of when I was married right out of college, and um, my husband was going to go to law school, and so I was going to be a teacher to help support us. And I uh, went in to introduce myself to the principal of, of the school where I had had a job. And I said, I'm Barbara Fletcher, and I'm your new Spanish teacher. And he said, no, you're our new French teacher. I said, no, no, really, I'm your new Spanish teacher. <laughs> and he said, no, you're actually our new French teacher. I had had eight years of Spanish to that point and two years of French. So that was a little bit life-altering at that moment. Let's just say I cried for a week and got on with it. Um, and then uh, I, I think, oui, uh, je peux parler français un petit peu. I can speak French a little bit. <laughs> Emphasis on a little bit. Um, then I go on through life, and um, when I was 28, my, my mother, I became a mom, rather. No, I was 23 when I became a mom. And um, that was life-altering, holy Toledo. A, a baby that cries all the time and was a projectile vomiter. You, you burp a baby and you vomit across the room. And, <laughs> whoa. and that feeling like I have lost all control of my life. I used to be able to set things in motion the way I planned, but suddenly my life is controlled by an infant. That was life-altering. Um, my mom passed away when I was 28. That was entirely life-altering. We moved from St. Louis, Missouri to Salem, Oregon um, when I was 33 years old and left behind my twin sister and her family and my father, who was a widower. Um, that was very life-altering. Uh, then another life-altering thing you'll, you, some of you may identify with, I gained 25 pounds in two years when I hit menopause, chose ice cream as my favorite food, and, uh, and my doctor lowered my thyroid medicine, and it was like this perfect storm. So there she went, um, gaining all of that weight, <laughs> which, of course, took three or four years to lose, but so much easier to gain weight than to lose weight. Um, and then I, I think of the life-altering circumstance when my uh, daughter's first child, uh, Jackson, was born with significant development and physical disabilities. And then my husband's death 21 years ago. And I could go on. You could, you could make a list if you um, are old enough. <laughs> it may not be quite as long as mine, but it may be even longer. And Because um, we've all had life-changing experiences that turned our lives upside down, either a little or a lot. And the, the key idea that I've, I just feel God has laid on my heart for this message is that we have choices in how we respond to those life circumstances and those upside-down experiences of our lives. We may be tempted to um, turn away from God with our anger, our disappointment, um, our shame, whatever it may be that could force us to turn away from God. We may be tempted to pull into ourselves. I've been there, done that, and you hide from people because you need to process this yourself. And, and it's tempting to do those things. And yet, um, if we are going to remain emotionally and spiritually healthy in life, God has called us to turn to him, of course, in those moments, and turn to the family of God. And I want to say not just the family of God, but the women of God who he has placed in our lives. And I'm impacted by this thought 
Um, all of us have insurance, right? We have car insurance, we have homeowner's insurance, we have um, oh, just tons of different kinds of insurance. Um, and yet, I want to ask, how much are we investing in relational insurance? Relationship with God and relationship with other women. Because those will be the things that God will use in ways beyond our imaginations to sustain us through the life-altering experiences that we all have in life. Relational insurance is critical, absolutely critical. This morning we get to talk about Joseph. Um, Joseph, is his life is found in Genesis, and probably for a lot of you it's a really familiar life. For some of you, maybe not so much. I know when I was the age of some of you young women, I didn't know much about the Bible. So if you're there, I get it. Um, and Joseph's story is told in the book of Genesis. It takes up literally 12 chapters of a 50-chapter book. And so it's, it's like God is saying, this is an important story, <laughs> and I want you to know it from start to finish. And I'm not going to talk about all of those chapters today, but I do want us to see how his life turned upside down, and he was forced to leave his, the security and the comfortableness of his family and move instead into a life of slavery and prison, uh, a life that went completely upside down and backwards. Um, and I, the question that I think we all ask, and some will know the answer, is why did his life go from that place of security and family and a good country to a whole different country and slavery and ultimately prison? Um, well, it started with this fact is that Joseph was his father's favorite son. It's never good to do play favorites. It's, it's just, you know, it usually turns out very badly, and it turned out very badly in his situation. Joseph had 10 older brothers and one younger brother, and uh, his, his older brothers um, were so resentful of his father's favoritism toward Joseph, and it's manifested in not just apparently the way his father treated him all the time, but even in the, in the passages, we're told that he had him this special coat. So it's like every day he walked around as the favorite child, you know, with the coat on him, and it really, really got to his brothers. Um, and if you have your Bibles, although we're going to put it on the screen so you don't really need to pull out your Bibles, but it's always good to do that. Um, <laughs> really, we used to pull out our Bibles and look it all up and underline and write notes in the margins, and now we see it on screens, but I'm sure there are advantages both ways. Um, <laughs> but uh, it says in Genesis 37.4, which I think we can pull up. There we go. But his brothers hated Joseph. They didn't just dislike him. They hated him because their father loved him more than the rest of them, and they couldn't say a kind word to him. They hated him. It, obviously, it built over the years. It built and built and built um, until by the time he was 17, they, they had had it with Joseph. Um, and uh, as the story goes on, the f uh, uh, sorry, I lost my place. I will find it. What verse are we first for? Okay, there we go. Um, Joseph, okay, so his father gives him the special coat and the special treatment, but God gives him special dreams. All right, so those dreams, Joseph is a, not an emotionally intelligent teenager, right? He makes mistakes like most teenagers and <laughs> like a lot of us. And he goes on and shares to his brothers, guess what, I had this dream and you're going to all bow down to me someday. <laughs> well, 
you know, that went over like a ton of bricks. And um, his brother's hatred on him turned and turned and turned and grew and grew and grew until one day when um, his father sent Joseph out into the fields, go find your brothers and do this and do this with them. The brother saw him coming from a distance and the scriptures um, tell us that they literally um, wanted to kill him. And ultimately, they changed their minds. And as they saw slave drivers coming down the road, they thought, we can sell him into slavery. And that's exactly what they did. And in Genesis 37, 36, it says, Meanwhile, the Midianite traders arrived in Egypt, where they sold Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Potiphar was captain of the palace guard. So he's sold into slavery. He has no life of his own now. He does exactly what Potiphar tells him to do. And that is the way of life he has to live after being in a, what seems to have been a prosperous home in a different country, um, living with a family that was maybe good, maybe not so good, given the jealousies within it. But nonetheless, what a change. Um, loss of so many things. And imagine being a 17-year-old and facing all of that and being shocked that your brothers, you know they didn't like you, but wow, that's really rough what they did to you. Um, and so God was with him, though, as a slave. And then the longest passage I want to read comes up now in, Janu in Genesis 39, um, where it says in verses 1 to 6, uh, when Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. God was in that. Potiphar was captain of the guard for the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Lord was with Joseph. So he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar, so he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. From the day that jo Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs ran smoothly. His crops and his livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative ability and responsibility over everything that he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food he would eat. So life wasn't easy for Joseph. Couldn't have been because he was a slave. He had to perform and do this, this, and this. But this passage makes it so resoundingly clear he was not alone. God was with him. And uh, when life turns upside down, we have to believe and know that God is with us in the midst of it. And a, a passage of scripture that has long um, overwhelmed me and blessed me is found in Philippians 2 because it's about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he lost to come to heaven, to earth for, uh, to earth for us. And then, well, we'll read it. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. He left heaven, came to earth. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and he even died a criminal's death on a cross. 
So from heaven's glory to death on a cross. And in between, what did he have in between? He had uh, some people that loved him and crowds that followed him, but he was rejected by the religious leaders. He was threatened his life all the time by religious leaders. He's having to hide from them and, and go different directions to get away from them. The endless pressing in of people for, who wanted his help and his encouragement and his healing and so forth. And yet, I'm struck as I think through the life of Christ of how the Father made it so apparent to Jesus, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. And so it was um, when he was baptized. What, what happened? Uh, the dove descends from heaven and we hear this voice that says, this is my beloved son who gives me great joy. Well, that's a great send-off in the ministry, isn't it? His father was with him a million percent. And then you think of all those miracles, and his father enabled him to do every single one, from the healing of a woman with the issue of blood to somebody like Lazarus already in the grave and dead. And the father gave him that power and gave him that ability and gave him the blessing of knowing he wasn't him. He was filled with the power of God to do it. Then you think of the transfiguration when it was um, not that long before he would suffer the cross. And he went up on this hill and it's called the transfiguration because his, his appearance was transfigured. And suddenly he was so bright that apparently you could hardly look at him. And some of his disciples were with him. And at that moment, God sends uh, Moses and Elijah from heaven to speak to Jesus. Most astonishing thing to even contemplate truly. I mean, I told my friend Betty when before she passed, she promised me she would send me texts from heaven and I'm still <laughs> waiting. I haven't gotten them. Um, but can you imagine Elijah and, and um, Moses appearing to Jesus? And they had this conversation and it, it was for these two men to help him understand what was facing him as he approached the cross. He didn't go blindly to the cross. He knew exactly what was going to come. But because of that, he knew his father was with him. And again, his father speaks and he says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So Jesus, of course, wasn't alone. His father was with him. And then ultimately in the on the cross itself, Jesus' final words, into your hands, I commit my spirit. So his father was with him even in the darkest, darkest, horrible suffering. Um, and so when I think about um, my journey with God, I think about the hard circumstances that turned me to him in a deep way. I was raised in a, in a good church, going to church every week, wasn't an evangelical church, but I sure learned about the love of God. Um, and I learned how, you know, all the books of the Bible. And all I, I mean, I could say them all. I had great Sunday school teachers and all of that. But I didn't understand how much of God I was missing. And I, uh, I thought he's concerned about world hunger, um, but I didn't have a sense of God's concern in my life. Um, individually, that seemed like, why would he worry about me? It's just little old me. I don't deserve that. Um, and then my twin sister's uh, second son was born with some significant birth defects. And then my husband was working and working and working and working and working and hardly ever home. And um, that was really hard for me as a young wife and a young mom. And I'm sure I'm not the only person in this room who has walked that journey. And you feel uh, rejected and you feel unloved, even though you are loved. I know I was loved, but 
it didn't feel loving. Um, those were hard times. And then my mother died very suddenly. And life really turned upside down. I was 28 years old when these sequence of things kind of all came together. And I knew at that point um, I needed more of God. And it was God himself, I now understand, who was drawing me to a much deeper well than I even knew existed. So God drew me and drew me and drew me. And the way he drew me was to send me to a Christian bookstore in a suburb of St. Louis where I guarantee you in, at that time, uh, 1974, there were hardly any Christian bookstores around at least where I lived. Um, but I found one and I went in and didn't even know what I was looking for. But I came out with a book called The Hiding Place about Corey Ten Boom's life. And um, some of you know who that is, but she and her family uh, lived this uh, incredibly godly life in Harlem, um, Holland, just outside of Amsterdam. And devout Christian family lived by the word of God. And I start reading this book, and I think, wow, they really love their Bibles. And um, they, when the Nazis occupied Holland, um, they began harboring the Jews that they could find, and they hid them up on the third story of their home in a fake closet, and they'd five or six at a time. They could hide in there till the resistance movement, they could pass them on and get them to a safe place. And um, so um, in the whole series of years during the Nazi occupation, they saved over 800 Jewish people. But in the end, they were caught. And the Nazis found them one day and um, came in, and uh, Corey Ten Boom and her sister and her father um, were all taken to concentration camps. Well, as I read that, I just, you know, risking your lives for people, that, that was, you know, I would have risked my life for my children. I, I don't know if I would have risked my life for other people. I really don't know. Um, I was overwhelmed by their love for the Jewish people and their um, longing to help and support and then when they uh, go into the concentration camp, Corey sneaks in her little Bible. Now, you just don't sneak things in with the Nazis because it will go very badly. But she did that. And I thought to myself, well, I have my little Bible, and it's got Barbara Renner, my maiden name on it. I've had it since I was probably 12 years old. Um, but it, I, I don't think I would risk my life for it. And so I thought, whoa. And that, that's impressive. And then she opens that Bible in the barracks with all of these women that are in the concentration camp in her same place. Um, and it's an in flea-infested barracks that nobody wanted to be in, but the advantage of it was that the guards didn't go in there. And so they could have Bible studies in the barracks. And you could see as you read the book that lives were being changed and comfort was flowing into that place because they were studying the Bible and about God. And I thought, wow, wow, that is impressive. And then this one young woman in the barracks is pregnant, and they go to the clinic, such as it was, and get some vitamin pills for her. And that vitamin pill bottle didn't run out. And it didn't run out, and it didn't run out. And I'm reading these things. I thought, you know, my, I believe that Jesus walked on water. I believe that he raised people from the dead. But that was then, and this is now. And so the whole thing opened my eyes and my heart to a God that I did not really understand at any level. 
Um, and this last summer, um, I had the extraordinary privilege of going to um, Amsterdam with my um, three children and their, and their spouses. And we went to see a tour of Corrie ten Boom's house, just the seven of us. And there I am with my daughter and daughters-in-law. And I have to laugh at that picture because you can tell um, a guy took it because he didn't get the top of the house. But <laughs> anyway. No, nothing. I'm sure they're wonderful. There are men, wonderful male <laughs> photographers, but, but anyway. <laughs> uh, so uh, I didn't know that until we'd left, and I go, oh, let's go back. But anyway, it's okay. Um, so we toured the home, and um, this woman whose uh, grandfather had been in the resistance and risked his life throughout the war gave us the tour, and it was the most incredibly meaningful thing. Um, and it just reminded me again of the unbelievable way that God led me to the right book at the right time when he knew I desperately needed to know him, truly invest in a relationship with God. Um, as I came out of that book, I thought, well, God, I need to know you, but I don't really know how to do that. I mean, my little King James Bible was not exactly easy to understand, and um, then God led me into Bible study fellowship in St. Louis within a matter of months, and I was able to study the Word of God deeply and in small groups with other women. And that began the first of what has been 48 years of small group women's studies for me. I've never not been in a women's small group because it has altered my life, altered my life. And so my Bible study right now that meets in my home every Tuesday afternoon, um, those seven women are praying for us this weekend. Um, they've been praying me through everything I've been going through. And I pray them through what they're going through. And we love on each other and we support each other. And I cannot imagine doing life without that kind of support. I cannot even imagine it. And I want to say to you that, again, that when we face life-altering circumstances, we can either turn to God or we can turn away. We can either turn to the people of God, in particular the women of God, or maybe we never invested in any women and we don't have people to turn to. So I cry out to us to invest in relationships and never try to do life alone. Joseph, um, even during his years of slavery, somehow turned to God um, and knew God was with him and knew that God was helping him be successful, even as a slave. Um, but then life turned upside down again. And Potiphar's wife uh, created real problems. And we're going to read about that in Genesis 39. Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. Here he is still deep with God, even as a slave, and choosing to walk the way that God wants him to walk. And the story goes on. 
She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. She wasn't content, and she refused to give up. And then one day, as Joseph came in, as many of us know the story, she grabbed this robe that he was wearing, and she, he, she pulled it off of him and wanting to, you know, attack him, so to speak. Um, and he fled. He absolutely fled. But in her humiliation, what does she do? She lies, right? She lies about what happened. And we read about that in Genesis 39, verses 19 and 20, where it says, Potiphar was furious when uh, he heard that his wife's story about how Joseph had, had treated her because she said he raped her. So he took Joseph and he threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained. So from slave to prison... And don't think about prisons as we know them in our country today. Uh, believe me, it was nothing as comfortable as that, as horrible as it would be to be in one of those. Nothing that comfortable. More like dungeons. Hideous, hideous places. And all because Potiphar believed a lie from his wife. She lied. He believed the lie. Joseph was walking with God, and yet his life turned upside down yet again. No guarantees of an easy life for people who follow God. You know, you can turn on um, Joel Osteen and listen to the health and wealth gospel if you want, but I'm telling you, it's not truth. <laughs> God doesn't promise us an easy life. He promises to be with us in the midst of life. So we think about what's happened to Joseph, going from a good home with a father who obviously adored him, from a family life who he knew brothers weren't crazy about him, but it was still his family, and he loved his younger brother a lot, being sold into slavery, getting to be in Potiphar's wealthy home, and God prospers everything he does, prestigious home, but then he's lied about, and then he's thrown into a vile, awful prison slash dungeon. All because people around him changed. He didn't change, but people around him changed. His brothers changed in their attitude toward him. Potiphar's wife changed from he's the nice guy in our house taking good care of us to wanting sexual relationship to Potiphar changed by believing the lie in spite of all the good he had seen in Joseph. And I think oftentimes changes in other people or circumstances in our lives affect us and we become, um, in a sense, a victim of those things. And we have to adapt to them. But it caused me to think back to when I began uh, preaching, at, uh, preaching at Salem Alliance back in 1992. And um, how when I preached the first time, um, people were like, what's a woman doing in our pulpit? And um, then I preached a second time, and then people were really, what's a woman doing in our pulpit? And... So our elder board said we need to get a position paper on this and assigned three of us. I worked with Morris Dirks, our lead pastor, and Wayne Carr, who was a um, phenomenal man of God, theologian, retired pastor. Um, and we, wrote, we spent a year writing a uh, theological paper, What Does the Bible Really Say About Women in Ministry? And at the end of that year, we presented it to the board of elders and at the Board of Elders, there would have been at least 15 men, and the, um, 
and one other woman besides myself who was taking notes. And those, there were three elders meetings that uh, were unlike any previously in the history of the church, I'm sure, because these were so contentious. And there were so many upset people and so many um, arguments. And I sat there, and a number of very good friends of my husband and myself were sitting in that U of a table, you know. Um, and yet they were saying I shouldn't be doing what I was doing. And it was hard. It was painful. Um, and it was painful to be the point person and say, this could cost the unity of our church. Is it worth it? And I remember going to Morris Dirks, who was lead pastor, and say, oh, Morris, are you sure it's worth it? Um, you're sure God wants you to do this and me to do this? And he said, absolutely, this is what we're meant to do. And um, I, I remember very vividly one elder uh, when I made a point that, you know, Back when the Bible was written, it was a different world for women than it is today. Back then, they were uneducated. Even the Jews prayed every day, literally, at the end of their Shema. Thank, I thank God I was not born a woman. Because women were denigrated. Women were not taught. Women were not trained. And so I, I, made the, I said in, you know, in this elders meeting, you know, well, it's different. And if, when you look at the Bible through historical eyes and understand the culture of that day, that is so vastly different from the education of women today. Um, maybe God, who's gifted us and called us, wants us to, wants us to follow, out, follow on with our gifts and our callings. And um, that elder, or one elder who was like an elder statesman, um, stood up and yelled at me. And I was like, holy cow. Oh, it was terrible. I just drive home crying. And, but we went through those three meetings. And at the end of those meetings, the elders voted to uh, allow women to be ushers, because we couldn't be before then, allowed us to um, help serve communion, which we couldn't do before then, allowed us to baptize somebody over whom we'd had spiritual influence, and would allow us to preach um, if the lead pastor invited us to preach. Uh, so we made progress, yeah. <laughs> Those are good changes, <laughs> yeah. We made progress. But um, men and women both left the church. Um, I couldn't tell you how many, I have no idea. Um, Morris, Dirk's lead pastor, took more heat than I did. But I, um, I, it was emotionally, I took a lot of heat. Uh, I'm not an argumentative person, and I'm uh, gentle by nature. And so to have dear friends, some leaving the church, uh, one family, I had led the wife to Christ, and they left the church. Oh, gosh, wow, seems not right, but oh well. Um, but, you know, over time, you realize, and I realize that I love these people. I love them. They may not agree um, with God's calling on my life, but I do love them. And um, God gave me the grace to stay in friendships with people that thought I shouldn't be doing what, what I did. And over time, um, circumstances have changed, and um, now there aren't very many people that walk out sometimes. I remember some, I call them young whippersnappers because they were college students. <laughs> um, the last time I preached before I stepped off the preaching team, they walked out, and I thought, golly zing, you little dickens, you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, life, you know, I, 
we follow God's call in our lives. I want to say that we follow God's call in our lives. And it's not always easy. It's not always easy at all. And it may, in some sense, sometimes feel like it turns our lives upside down emotionally and otherwise. Um, and that was my experience. It took years to kind of stabilize my emotional being um, after all of that. And then the other circumstance that um, was because somebody else changed was my dear husband, who was a very, very, very good man who lost his way in life. And uh, he, in, he was an attorney and um, decided to write a book. And it was brilliant. I don't have a doubt in my mind it was brilliant. It's about estate planning stuff. You and I just whew, way over our heads. And um, I, he spent four years doing that, morning, noon, and night, um, six and seven days a week, whether we were on vacation or not. And in the end, um, the book was published, and we, he was asked to speak at the Oregon um, Bar Association, which is all the attorneys gathered together at a convention. And um, my daughter and I was the only one left at home at that point, went to listen, and Shanna was in high school. And he presented his paper on it in this brilliant new way to do estate planning, and it would save people a lot of money, blah, blah, blah. And then um, a woman who was a professor at the University of Oregon stood up and gave a counter-argument. And she said, it's, it's brilliant. He's right. It's way too complicated. We can't do it in our private practices. And I sat there and thought, four years, gone. And it never sold because it didn't get the endorsement because it was too complicated. Um, and that was obviously hard on us, and it was certainly hard on my husband. And it sent him into a bit of a spiral, and um, uh, that and some other things led to him committing suicide um, 21 years ago. And after his um, death, which, to say the least, was shocking, um, I tried to understand why. There was no note. There was nothing. Why did he do this? I mean, I knew he'd been depressed. I had gone with him even to the doctor, um, uh, which never, that was the only time in his entire life that ever happened. Um, and I said, he's really depressed. And he said, he has no reason to be depressed. Just, you know, get on with life. And I thought, well, that was helpful. Um, it, but in any event, um, he couldn't get on with life. And not until a few days after his death, um, when I called to check on our finances and our estate, our planning, um, I learned that all of our money was gone. All of our retirement money was gone, and all of my, in my inheritance from my father was gone. And he had um, lost his way by gambling it as a day trader in the stock market. So needless to say, um, my life turned upside down, financially, emotionally, every way you could imagine. And yet, by the grace of God and relational investments over many, many, many years, I didn't stand alone. And my children stood with me. And we would get together, even though we were spread far apart geographically. Um, how are you doing? How are you doing? How are you doing? And we grieved together and we... Um, grieved differently. One son started being with um, just profound sadness. Son number two started with profound anger. Daughters started with 
dad's taken enough from us, I'm not letting him take any more from me, to all of those emotions changed over time. And God met all of us in our different places, met me in my place of shame. How could I be a pastor if I can't even see that coming? And Morris Dirks, I remember seeing at the end of Paul's service, um, Barb, this didn't set you aside from ministry. You're still called to be a pastor. And I just sat there thinking, how can that be? But God, God redeemed it all and has redeemed it. And I would say out of these deepest places of pain and loss that you can't even imagine happened to you, God has shown me his love in ways I could never have seen it if my life had been all so sweet and comfortable. And I don't know what circumstances in your life are, are happening right now or how many people have changed and it's spilled out in your life. But I just want to say to all of us that Jesus understands and Jesus cares. And uh, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 tells us this, that this high priest of ours, he understands our weaknesses for he faced all of the same tests we do and yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly not timidly, but boldly to the throne of grace and there expect to find mercy and grace to help us when we need it most. That was my experience. And I know that can continue to be all of our experiences because it's a promise of God. We can't control our circumstances, but we can control at some level our responses to those circumstances. And, you know, sometimes I think, God, you must get so sick of me praying that same prayer over and over and over again. And then I'm reminded of the um, phenomenal parable that Jesus told about the woman that went up to the judge and knocked on his door for this and knocked on his door for the same thing and knocked on the door for the same thing over and over and over again. And the end, in the end, the judge says, you can have what you want. And um, Jesus says honors that woman for her persistence and pursuing the longing and the need of her heart before the throne of God. So yeah, we cry out to him for help. And we cry out to him, at least I cried out to him um, for two straight years after Paul's death. I, I cried out through the Psalms. I couldn't read the Psalms except to pray them back to God. And that's why we put on your chairs. I wanted you to have this Psalms listed by mood and you can find different moods in every single psalm, but toward the end of the list, um, you're, you says, how in pain or frustration or illness, these are some psalms you could pray, or in discouragement or hurt or whatever, put in your own name and cry out to God. And my Bible from that season of life is filled with notes by the psalms of crying out to God and hearing him promise he would care for me when it looked to me like, how in the world do we make anything out of this mess? But I encourage you to read the Psalms and live in the Psalms when you're in hard place. Because in the Psalms, God assured me of his presence. He assured me of his love. Um, and he promised he would care for me. And he has. <laughs> he has. So I can shout about the love of God. 
And God didn't get tired of listening to me, and he didn't get tired of listening to Joseph, even though he's down in some dungeon somewhere. He prospers him there. And God speaks to him through more dreams. And um, if you think about Joseph, there were no Bibles in that day. He didn't have other Jewish brothers there to talk to him and encourage him in God. He was in Egypt. It's not a Jewish place. Um, All he had was what his father had taught him when he was a kid. But it was enough. It was enough. And God spoke to him through dreams and ultimately had the opportunity to interpret a dream for the Pharaoh of Egypt. And that led to a complete change in his life. And he was out of prison. But 17 years he spent as a slave or in prison. 17 years from the age 17 to the age 34. Now take that chunk out of our lives and think how differently we would have lived life. Incredible, really. But he didn't give up on God, and certainly God did not give up on him. And while he couldn't control his circumstances or any, he could control his responses to them. And he chose faith. And you wonder, so how much faith do I need? How much faith do I need? to go be like that woman that drove the judge crazy and persistently pray to God. How much faith do I need? And Jesus said, if you had faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you could say the mulberry tree, you may be rooted up, planted in the sea, and that tree would obey you. Now, a mulberry tree, you need to know, grows to 80 feet high. And it comes from a seed the size of a poppy seed. And Jesus is saying in that parable, That's all the faith you need. Poppy seed-sized faith. We don't have to be spiritual giants, whoever they are, whatever they are. We just need to be women who seek the face of God and the heart of God and the help of God. Life is endlessly full of upside-down events. Endlessly. (laughs) My dear friend Betty's death seven, eight, nine days ago a daughter-in-law struggling deeply with anxiety disorder. Sanibel Island, which you may have seen in the news of all the, in Florida, Hurricane Eden that destroyed, uh, Ian destroyed Sanibel Island, 90% of the island. My husband's family homesteaded that island. I went there on my honeymoon. I've gone there on countless vacations. My sister has a home there, and the island's been destroyed. Um, My brother needs a major heart surgery. My grandchildren have been derailed by life and other traumas, several of them, COVID, etc. You know, life is not going to get simple, people. We cannot control our circumstances, but we can control our responses. And so I would encourage us to, um, whatever our circumstances, that we turn to the people of God and we turn to God himself, because what other hope do we have? And this, finally, I close with the quote uh, from Corey Ten Boom. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to unknown God. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you that your word is true. Thank you that for Joseph's story and the hope that it gives us. 
Thank you that you never forsake us, you never abandon us. Thank you that you've brought these women here who are obviously investing in relationships with the family of God and the women of God. And I pray this weekend they would invest and reap fruit as never before. And Father, we pr I pray that for whatever circumstances my sisters here, my beloved sisters here are facing, that they would see you, experience you, cry out to you, and experience your incomparable faithfulness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.